Hello, I'm Giles Brandreth. Thank you for being whatever you are. I'm here with another episode of Rosebud. Rosebud Headquarters. I say Rosebud Headquarters. It's just me and my producer, Harriet Jane. Anyway, the pair of us, we're already thinking ahead to Christmas. And we've got quite a few quite exciting festive surprises planned for you. And we'd love to feature your Christmas stories in the podcast. So do please get in touch with any memories you have of your first Noel or Christmases when you were very young. We're also going to be looking for New Year reminiscences too. So please get in touch with your first footing stories, your New Year resolutions that went hopelessly wrong before you even got to the 2nd of January. Our email, hello at rosebudpodcast.com. Now, never mind me, never mind you. Who's my guest this week? Oh, yes, somebody quite special. This time, we're doing something different. We're actually out on the road. And this is the first of what will be an occasional series of episodes of Rosebud, where I happen to be meeting someone at a public event in a theatre, or in this case, today, in a church. We're actually going to be going to St. Mary's Church in Barnes, in southwest London, to meet Anne Glen Connor, Lady Glen Connor. And we're going there because uh, she's taking part in the Barnes Literary Festival. I think they call it the um, Book Fest. Anyway, she's a very successful author. Didn't become one till she was 87 years of age. She's got a remarkable heritage, historic. She's uh, the daughter of an earl, and from childhood she knew some quite extraordinary people. That's what she's going to tell us about. And then when she was 87, somebody persuaded her to publish a book, and it became a global bestseller, sold more than a million copies. Called Lady in Waiting, it's about her time as Lady in Waiting to Princess Margaret, who was the younger sister of the late Queen Elizabeth II. But her life story is, in a sense, more interesting than that, more complicated, full of tragedy and also hope. She is a most remarkable human being. Now 92, I've met her a few times, but in this conversation, I found she was telling me things, some of which I'd heard before, but many of which were new to me. I hope you enjoy this first outing of Rosebud on the Road from St. Mary's Barnes, and the Barnes Book Fest. Round of applause, please. There were hundreds of people in the audience. I want to begin our conversation now, and to give people an idea of the shape of our conversation, we're going to begin by talking about Anne's life, her story that brought her up to writing her first book. And then the second half of our conversation is going to be really a change of gear about her most recent book, which I think is, is remarkable. All her books have been huge bestsellers, and as well as the books that are about her life, she's also written some hugely entertaining murder mysteries, which I do recommend. But let's begin at the beginning, if we may, Anne. What is your very first memory? 
Well, I suppose uh, memories are, are difficult, aren't they? Because you're never quite sure whether they're real or not. But I, the, one of the very first memories was because um, I was brought up at Holcombe when I was young. And I don't know if any of you have been to Holcombe, but it's one of the sort of very large, stately home. And it has got the most, probably the, one of the most fantastic halls, marble hall. And I remember on my tricycle going round and round. And of course, it was at the age of three that I first met Princess Margaret. She, because Holcomb's quite near Sandringham, so, uh, uh, the Queen and uh, she was called Princess Elizabeth then, and Princess Margaret Rose. And the minute I saw Princess Margaret, I just thought, I, you know, I liked her. And we were both quite naughty. And the poor Queen was always, always saying, just, Anne, Margaret, what are you doing? Because we, we weren't allowed to take our tricycles into the Marble Hall. But of course we did. And I remember the Queen coming down the steps, she was, I suppose, about nine, and looking at us and saying, what are you doing? You're very, very naughty. Princess Margaret and I just peddled away out of another door, screaming with laughter. <laughs> I suppose that's one of the first memories. I, I have had. to say, on the podcast, Rosebud, we've had some interesting people with some impressive first recollections, but an encounter with Princess Margaret and Elizabeth, who becomes Elizabeth II, as your first memory, is quite impressive. I mean, <laughs> others do rival it because there are people whose first well, memory was I watching think... the coronation, but they were watching on television. Explain to me, Holcomb Hall, H-O-L-K-H-A-M, is where, why were you in that house, and why were Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret Rose coming to the house? Well, the thing was that, that um, Holcomb is my family home, um, and uh, um, the, the title is Leicester, so my great-grandfather's Lord Leicester, the Earl of Leicester. And then my father, you see, was an equerry to the then Duke of York before he became king. And he, my father's with him all during the time of the abdication, which is very um, interesting time to be. And he just felt so sorry for the king, who was to become king, because A, he had a terrible stutter, and was, uh, that was a terrible impediment, although he got over it up to a point. And it was just, I mean, he wasn't expecting to be king, you know. And they had a, the, queen, the Queen Elizabeth and him and the two children. They were, they were us four, you know, a lovely little family group. And suddenly, um, you know, to their horror, um, the, the Duke, you know, the then Duke of Windsor decided to go. And I think the King, I know Queen Elizabeth was always blamed uh, the king's early death on becoming king. And when people say, uh, people used to say to me sometimes, do you think the queen might abdicate, you know, like the Queen of Holland did? And I said, no, she never will, because she's brought up, she adored her Uncle David. And I think it was the most awful blow when he suddenly just left like that. And I think she decided at a very early age she would never do anything like that. So when did you first realise that you came from this unusual family where your childhood friends included uh, the children of a duke who would shortly become a king? When did you first think this? Well, I didn't think, uh, not too much. I mean, I, one, one realised how other people were behaving because it's so interesting, having been a lady-in-waiting to Princess Margaret for 34 years, how people alter when they meet a member of the royal family. Uh, they sort of freeze, a lot of them, or they gabble away, you know. And uh, the role of a lady-in-waiting um, is uh, to 
just smooth the path of the royal personage. And so we walk behind, and which is quite interesting because nobody's looking at you. One is completely invisible. And um, quite often uh, I could see people speaking to Princess Margaret, Princess Margaret would walk on, and then I would say hello. And I often said, was there anything you wanted to say to Princess Margaret? Oh, yes. We, we, we were so overcome, we didn't say... So that I said, well, you tell me, and I will tell her later on. And that's what I did. And, it, you know, it's, like, it's a nice role, actually, I had. Yes, Elizabeth II once told me that most people, when they met her, told her about the last time they'd met her. Uh, so no, no, nothing very much happened. She said, they would say, oh, you, do you remember in, when you came to Jamaica in 1953? And then they would tell that story. And well, of course they couldn't possibly remember. No. Go back to your childhood. Uh, you're a little girl. Uh, you have these unusual friends. Um, what are your early recollections of your life? Were, are you educated at home? Do you go to a school? What happens? I had a governess. Um, because I was, brought, I was born in 32, uh, um, and so I'm extremely old. I'm going to be 92. But on the other hand, I've never had such a good time in my life. <laughs> uh, I had no idea the 90s were going to be so much fun. Uh, but I, you know, in those days, um, we had governesses, and then I went to boarding school when I, when I was 11. And, and then, because it was the end of the war, there was no money to go abroad. And so I was sent to um, a, another stately home called Powdrum Castle, which is run by Lord and Lady Devon. And they had a tremendously good wheeze, because there were 26 of us, and we looked, we did everything in the house. We spent fortnight with the butler. We loved that, because we, we had nips of wine and things that people... Uh, a, a fortnight with the cook, which is interesting. Bought night with a nanny. I, I could do, I, I remember little boys in those days had sort of frilly collars and we had gophering arms and I remember gophering all these endless frilly collars and then we hated being with the housekeeper, hospital corners and you know she's always doing that under the bed to see whether we dusted um, and um, but we did actually not that we were really all that keen on running a stately home but that's what we were being trained to do But your next book could possibly be Lady Glenconnor's household tips well, based on is, your experience. Well, there, that's true. There is one person, because I, I was very lucky. I was in the bestseller. I was number one a, a bit, but the person that was in the me, number one for a bit, she was an instant number one. She was in the bestseller well, list for 34, 34 weeks, weeks consistently. <laughs> Briefly in America, you were pipped for one week only, I think, by Michelle Obama. Well, well I, was, she, I, I pipped her for one week. I was the other way around. But the one person to beat, actually, is a lady called Mrs. Hinch, Mrs. Hinch's household tips. It's frightfully difficult to knock her off the top spot, which I did. Anyway, I think my next book will be uh, household tip, Lady Glen Connor's household tips. Don't you think that might be rather good? Brilliant idea. idea. Were you a happy girl? At school, were you happy? At uh, I was terribly homesick. You know, my parents had been away, and then they came back, and then I was sent to school, uh, off to school. You know, and in those days, boarding school, you there's one weekend a year. Now the children seem to come back the whole time. So, what is your first friend other than a member of the royal family? Uh, well, I suppose it was um, when I went to school. Um, yes, I had two friends. Sadly, because I'm so old, that, that, that is the sadness of growing old, actually, is your friends go. And they both, my best friend died about two months ago, uh, which is very sad. 
But on the other hand, um, I do have some younger friends too. I think that's a great thing. The older you get, then you've got to try and, you know, be friends with younger people. What sort of a child were you as a teenager? Well, I, I was rather grumpy, I think, actually. A bit grumpy. I don't know why. Uh, because my mother started this pottery because she didn't think that my sister and I should go and work in London. And uh, during the war, we had a prison war camp in the park. And we had, uh, first of all, Italians came. They were lovely. And we, my sister and I used to ride our ponies right around the, the, the camp. And they all waved. And the, the, the fact a lot of them came out and worked in the garden. None of them wanted to run away. But then, at the end of the war, the Germans came, and they were different. I mean, Carrie and I didn't realize, and they just glared at us. But one of them was a potter, and we had our own brickyards. We made all our own bricks and everything for the estate, and we had our own clay. And my mother saw this German. He'd made a little wheel and was making a pot, and that gave her the idea that she might start. And in fact, it was a huge success. At, at, at the height, we employed 100 people. We were the lightest, the largest lightest industry in North Norfolk. My father was particularly irritating and said, oh, how are you getting on in the potting shed? You know, <laughs> and my mother said, it's not the potting shed, you know. It's, uh, but, but that, of course, I was grumpy because I had the most horrible job of you probably never heard of fettling or sponging, which was getting the pots ready to, to go into the kiln. And my mother said, look, Anne, you really, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I would like to sell. I've always liked selling. That's why I'm so thrilled now uh, with selling my books. That's what I enjoy really more than anything. And off I went with the samples. Um, and quite often I stayed in travelling salesman hotels. And they really, very, low key they were, smelt of cabbage and I was the only woman on, on the circuit and the only I was only 17 and actually so many of the other travelling sales were, were charming uh, once they were amazed and they found out who I was and would give me advice you know about what shops to go to, how to present myself and my goods you know and then of course I went to America to sell and I went on Greyhound buses Again, nowadays, nobody of 70 you know, would be allowed to do that, I, all on my own. And it was there, of course, um, that I was staying, actually, I had one friend in New York, and this telegram arrived. And um, in those days, telegrams were only sent to you know, if somebody died or anything like that. So I opened it very gingerly, wondering. And it was my mother saying, come home, Anne, you've been asked to be a maid of honor at the Queen's coronation. Wow. Wow. So I and all my, I hadn't so much pottery up to that point. And suddenly my order book was full. I had the most hideous Toby jug of the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh, which hadn't gone very well. But once they knew, um, you know, I was going to be the maid of honour, um, they, they, I sold hundreds of them. Jasper, <laughs> <laughs> we move on to the coronation. So you are a teenage girl. And you are going as a sales girl yeah. around the UK and on your own to the United States of America. Yeah. And your parents are quite relaxed about this. And do you feel safe? Well, they, they, well my parents didn't bother. I mean, apart from anything, Downham, the school I went to, where I went in 42, uh, was just in the part where all the doodlebugs landed. And we slept in the cellar in the school. We slept there. But my parents didn't bother a bit. I mean, I I, it is extraordinary. They didn't. Nowadays, people mind about this and that. In those days, 
They didn't. Really. And what was your expectation of life when you were 16 or 17? Did you have a, an ambition? Well, yeah, well I, the, the last school I went to, which I haven't mentioned, was some where I learnt and everything that I've learned that has been useful to me. It was called the House of Citizenship, and it was run by Miss Neville Rofe, whose, uh, whose grand, great-grandmother was Pocahontas. Yes, Neville Rofe went to America, married Pocahontas, and Queen Victoria, you know, was always fascinated by, uh, like, the Munchie, uh, her Indian, and so she asked for Neville Rofe to bring Pocahontas back to London, because she wanted to meet her, which she did, but unfortunately, the, the, the smog and the, and the thing in London killed her. She didn't live very long. This is Pocahontas. This what? Pocahontas, it's I would Pocahontas. say. Pocahontas, yes, exactly. The, 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 the in, you know, yes. Red Indian, yes. yeah. Absolutely. Well, this, this lady who ran this school was her great-granddaughter. How extraordinary. Uh, and she was wonderful at teaching. And the one thing that I didn't realise was going to be so absolutely invaluable to me, we were learnt how to public speak. And we'd be, be sitting here, like you're all sitting there, Miss Neville Rofe would be here, and she'd say, Anne Cook, uh, get up, ten minutes on the Firth of Forth Bridge. I mean, we had no idea what we were going to be asked. Up we got. And you just had to think off your head. It's like just a minute, but ten times worse. <laughs> <laughs> Ten minutes of it on the, on the well, Firth of Forth Bridge. Impossible, but you just had to, and that, um, and then of course, my mother was a lady in waiting to the Queen. Uh, she, queen, you mean Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Not the Queen Mother, the oh, Queen. The, 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 well, the last Queen, Queen, queen Elizabeth II. Okay. Queen Elizabeth II. Um, my mother had been asked to be a lady in waiting, and I was a maid of honour, and it was lovely because when I, I was carrying the Queen's tray, and my mother's walking just behind me. Um, but, but um, uh, you know, it was just great. But before we get to the royal life, did you have as an individual hopes for yourself? Or was it, were you of a generation where your expectation was simply to be married? Yes. And explain. I, yes, I mean, when we all knew. I mean, that was the, 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 the coming out season. I mean, uh, there was sort of two, three balls a night in London, and you could either choose the one you really wanted to go to for a friend, or you could go to two. And people either had a, a dance in London, or a cocktail party at a hotel, or like, I was very fortunate at Holcomb, if you had a big house like that. I had a huge coming out party. It was one of the first it was in 1950. And luckily, because um, is very near the coast, very near the sea, and uh, we, we had uh, the searchlight team had been in the park all the war. We, I mean, we had the army there, we had the home guard there, and we had the searchlight. And they said to my father, we're just about to pack up and leave, but we hear your daughter's having a coming out. Uh, would you like us to light up the park? And it was magical because they put covered things in the whole of the park. And my father went up to the um, uh, top where, where, where people came in and met the king. The king and queen came, white tie, medals. And of course, Queen Elizabeth was in a wonderful crinoline. And I've got, I said, one of the wonderful memories I have uh, we had Tommy Kinsman, which was the band in those days. And, uh, um, and, uh, and the queen, she, she asked for the song she liked. She said, would, he, would you mind if I asked? Of course, we said, no, of course, you ask what you want. And then she, she'd waltz around, and I remember that side of her waltzing around the long gallery at Holcomb. But, um, uh, but we knew that, because um, the thing about the aristocracy, uh, less so now, but is the, the object is an heir. 
Giles here, and I'm delighted that this series of Rosebud is sponsored by one of the finest hotels in the world. That's no exaggeration, the J.W. Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel on London's Park Lane. We often record Rosebud at the Grosvenor House itself, and afterwards I always make sure I pop down to their beautiful park room for some tea and cake. Cake is my one weakness. Afternoon tea is naturally my favourite meal of the day. I'm excited to tell you that in the run-up to the festive season, Grosvenor House are offering a very special afternoon tea to celebrate a much-loved Christmas story, The Snowman by Raymond Briggs. Yes, I knew him too. The magical menu features five limited-edition cakes and pastries inspired by The Snowman. Delicious finger sandwiches, scones, clotted cream and jam, a pot of newbie fine tea, and even a glass of champagne. This tea promises to be an enchanting experience for all generations and is available from the 17th of November. Visit www.parkroom.co.uk. That's www.parkroom, all one word, .co.uk to book. You never know, I might just see you there. And when you do book your snowman tea, tell them that Giles sent you. Before you rush to that, before you rush to that, we, this is all so, so rich and extraordinary um, that we've got to read the books if we haven't read them already. Uh, the idea of the coming out ball is both to present you to society and to introduce you to the possibility of eligible young men. Is that not one of the ideas that, that of it? There was a slight drawback when I came up because there, there was, um, they, they were all doing national service. So there was a great shortage of men. And so I, I knew all the ladies in the cloakroom intimately because we used to gather and I remember we had a card sometimes where we used to write who had asked us to dance well my card was more or less empty uh, and I wrote Clark Gable or something for fun <laughs> somebody said is Clark Gable here <laughs> and I, I was absolutely I said well I'm afraid not but, but um, yes and so who was the first boy or young man to take your fancy as opposed to them taking a fancy to you. Who was the first person that you thought, oh, I like the look of this young man? Well, um, I was terribly shy. I mean, I've got no brothers. That's why, because of primogenitor, I couldn't inherit Holcomb and the title. Uh, I knew that from an early age because I got a photograph of myself as a baby. Be, uh, I was being christened, just being christened, on the steps at Holcomb Hall. As my father's got me, my grandfather's there, my great-grandfather's there, they're looking at me frightfully disappointed, amazed. How could she be, not be a boy? And there's no sign my mother, uh, you know, because he was always men, complete men. So I was brought up knowing that I'd be, it was a, a disappointment, you know. And all these, so when you got to the dance floor, my father was very, very strict at my dance and had a special list drawn up of suitable men, you know. And he wanted me to marry one of his friends, Lord Stair, the Earl of Stair, who was as old as him and had won a bobsleigh race before the wars. <laughs> You are 17 or so yeah, this 17. time. Um, and, and this is a man of 40 or 50. Said, Look, I really lo love uh, John Stays, my best friend. He's got the best marvellous shoot in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 and, uh, you know, a, a 
a sort of dripping castle and a dank rhododendron. Uh, and so I said, but Dan, I, this, I don't, you know, he, he's old as you, there's no spark. Oh, and he's, my father said, that's really disappointing. What about his brother? <laughs> <laughs> and his brother was called John de Rimple. And I, and I did go out with him once or twice, but again, absolutely not. So, of course, I can't tell you when I actually got engaged to, her, to um, Colin. I mean, I couldn't, my father just ran away with me every time I tried to say, oh, Dad, I want something, I've got something to tell me. Not now, I am, not now. Before we get to Colin, though, you mentioned John, Johnny, who became Johnny Spencer, the yes. father of Diana, later Princess yeah, of well, Wales. Explain about, about that. Well, I mean, um, I had no brothers. I'd been to single sex. I, and in the war, you didn't, couldn't meet people, you know. We, we went as far as our pony cart went. Uh, and so anyway, because of Spencer land, some of it uh, marched with Holcomb land, um, he was asked to Holcomb. I felt completely in love with him, you know. We went out, and then he asked me to marry him, and we told our parents. And then I went to stay um, at Windsor of Ascot, and he, he was in waiting, he was, um, to the king, he was, actually, it was a query, I think, and when I got there, there's no sign of Johnny, and I thought, oh, God, but what, you know, he didn't tell me he couldn't come, what's happened, I had a miserable time, actually, because I, I, I kept on wondering where he was, and he never actually said, but afterwards, we, we were told, my parents were told, that um, he, he had this really uh, rather unpleasant father called Jack Spencer, and because my grandmother was a Trefusis. That, it was considered bad blood. The Trefusis family? The Trefusis, and... Uh, As in Violet Trefusis? No, no, a not about. But the reason it was that one of the uh, Queen's uncles had married a, a Trefusis and had those two dotty girls. Do you remember reading about them? I do, indeed. Yeah, uh, it's too awful. And I said, well, when he came out in the, in the newspaper, I said to Princess Margaret, don't you think, ma'am, you should visit them? Visit them, she said. Of course I'm not going to visit them. And anyway, the Queen, the, one of them had a pauper's grave, but I think the Queen, when she realised, actually uh, did something about it. But, but it is difficult blood there. And although my grandmother was fine and, and we were all fine, Jack Spencer didn't want anything that might, you know. So you and Johnny, did you, never, you never saw him again, as it were, until well, years later? Really, no. no. Uh, so how did Colin come onto the scene? Well, Colin, of course, is so different from Lord Stair and all the people that my father wanted me to marry. Who, uh, and the thing about Colin was he was extraordinary. He was wonderfully clever and amusing, and he had so many good things going for him. But unfortunately, he was all spoiled, and he had this ungovernable temper, you know. And of course. You know, the minute um, he said he wanted to marry me, and he said, well, the minute Anne we're married, I'll never want, need to lose my temper again. Well, those of you who saw Graham Norton, well, my honeymoon was an absolute disaster. Well, tell us, tell us about your honeymoon. Tell us, give us. Well, we'd like to hear it again from your own mouth in this room now, in this church, (laughs) in this sanctified space. The awful thing is I may say something about... uh, uh, Okay. Just just remind us... how old, are you? How old are you at this time when uh, you get married to him? I'm going to be 92 next. No, 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 no. Well, it's extraordinary. We, uh, that, uh, sorry. I mean, how old were you when you married Colin? Oh, I was 22. You were 22, and how old was he? Uh, 26. 26. And he was charming, he was dashing, he was amusing, and you were in love with him? Yes. Yes. 
Yes, yeah, I was. I mean, I was in love with the idea of him. Yeah. You know? And where did you get married? Uh, we got a huge um, wedding at Holcombe. Um, I had three wedding cakes. We had, my father had two big tents, one for the workers on the estates, the huge estate, 50,000 acres, um, and one for the tenant farmers and all that sort of thing, and then one for our friends. And Tony Snowden took our wedding photographs, and Princess Margaret came to my wedding with the Queen Mother, and th- she met Tony, that was the first time. And anyway, this vast wedding, and then we were going to fly to Paris. And we got there about sort of three in the morning, I suppose. A f- terribly small uh, concierge, uh, French concierge behind the thing, took us up to, we thought, the honeymoon suite. Single beds. Well, Colin promised he wouldn't lose his temper. There was the most awful fight. He raged down, how dare you, you know, sort of honeymoon thing. So the little man behind the desk said, well, the only thing I can suggest is in French uh, is there's a sort of mattress in the cellar, a double mattress. If, we, if we, we could bring it up, we could put it over the two single beds. Everybody in the hotel w- woke up. There was Colin, who was humping this huge, rather dirty mattress up. Uh, but they arrived, they flung the mattress on the d- single beds. Uh, the, little man sort of half underneath but he got out and then Colin just lay down and went to sleep and I was standing there in my best going away dress silk thing with, uh, I think I'd taken my hat off well, and it wasn't much better the next morning either. And then we went to the Louvre. We then went round the Louvre, we were gazing at the Mona Lisa and things like that. And then Colin said, well, I've got a surprise for you tonight. So I thought, well, you know, things are looking up. And I thought, well, perhaps dinner at the Ritz, you know. Got my best dress on. Anyway, we drove to the, some ghastly sort of outskirts of Paris where the most ghastly. Well, it was a brothel, actually. Uh, <laughs> we went up into this room, and there were two wing-back chairs, velvet chairs. They weren't wing-back, thank God. I sort of did far. And on the bed were these two really well, disgusting French people making love. And then they kept on saying, would you like to join in? And I was I frightfully polite. I said, well, it's frightfully kind of you to ask, but no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the most awful noise, and the, the very interesting, well, not, not really quite interesting, but, but I use the word squelch, because that's exactly the noise they were doing. And nowadays, thank goodness you would never do that, but men do come up to me, and all they say is squelch. <laughs> And I made the great mistake of pretending I was deaf. So they said it louder. <laughs> so now I don't, so I, mean, I just move away. But anyway. But, but hold on for a moment. Had your parents explained to you the facts of life? Was this well, a, hardly. My yeah. mother, no. Because all my mother had said, uh, well, I did, by that time, I did sort of obviously know a bit more. But originally, no, she just said, uh, and, you know, she had a dog called Biscuit. And my father had a dog called Ned. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 and she said, well, you know what Ned tries to do to biscuits sometimes when she's got some blood coming out of her bottom? And I'm absolutely appalled. And, she, uh, and he, she said, the same thing will happen to you, but you'll probably be out on a bed, which I thought was all. <laughs> and that's all, you know. And 
well, it picked up. I picked, obviously picked up a bit more. So. And did, did the marriage settle down after this? Were there some good years before the more challenging um, years? Well, the honeymoon was awful. It didn't, that, 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 that didn't. And uh, um, then I started um, Charlie, our, our first son. Yes, it did, really, because um, Colin, I married Colin because they had a sea tenant son. Um, was a bank in the city. So every morning we lived in Kent. He went off with his umbrella and bowler hat. You know, that's why I married. And then very soon after we were married, we went to Trinidad because the tenants had land in Trinidad. And there it was that he had an opportunity to sell the land there, heard about an island in the, in the Grenadines, went down. I didn't actually go with him. Didn't land, bought Mustique, and then, you know, and then of course he uh, decided to spend much more time. I went with him actually. I was six months there alone on uh, Mustique with him. And when people say uh, why, because I was asked to write two novels, and one of them is murder um, uh, in Mustique. Partly. I had six months of wondering if I could kill Colin and how I'd kill him. <laughs> and, I, and I had a wonderful idea, because we grew cotton, and I was going to kill him somehow, and get him into the, the cotton was bagged up, and they said I could shove him in, and then he'd be discovered when they arrived, wherever they were um, uh, doing the cotton in England. But, uh, and that, that was only partly, the fact there was a murder on Mustique, which, people, they try and hide up. It was never sold. We're going to, in a moment, talk about why you stayed with him for 43 years, given the challenges. But before we do, how did you come to be the lady-in-waiting to Princess Margaret? How did that happen? Well, I think it happened because I'd always known her as a child, uh, and we were such friends, and then the war, we didn't meet. And then she was called older in those days, if you were two, three years older. You, you didn't actually, uh, you know, she went to... She was in our Princess Margaret set, which Colin was in. And uh, I, my mother, I mean, we'd always been great friends. Members of my family have always been. I had a great uncle Jack, who was Lord in waiting to Queen Mary. Uh, Aunt Mary was lady in waiting to, to Queen Mother. You know, we'd always, my mother was asked to be lady in waiting to, to Queen Elizabeth II. And also, we'd given Princess Margaret a piece of land when she came on our honeymoon to um, um, my. And, uh, um, you know, she, she said, could she come and stay? And I said, well, look, ma'am, we've got no hot water, no electric light. We're living in a sort of porter cabin. Oh, I don't mind, she said. And she didn't. I mean, she's fantastic, loved it. And I think that partly that so that I could be with her. And uh, it was, I was so thrilled. And I had a wonderful 34 years with her. She had a mixed press, it's fair to say. What, is the, what was the best of her and what was the worst well, of her? Well, this is partly why I, re- I wrote Lady in Waiting. I was so angry with people who wrote books about her who didn't know her. There was a horrible one called Ma'am Darling. Do you read that? <laughs> well, it just made me so angry. I mean, it was completely untrue, a lot of things. So I just wanted to set the record straight, uh, apart from everything else. Uh, and that was one of the reasons, actually, I, I wrote. And I had so many letters from people saying we never thought much of Princess Margaret really but because of your book a completely different light you shone on her one of the things that which is a really good friend was when my son Henry got AIDS and in those days it was terrifying we didn't know how it was caught and suddenly 
none of my friends wanted to come and stay, you know. She always did. She always came. She brought David and Sarah. She, when she saw Henry, she hugged him. She went with me to the lighthouse where a lot of young men were dying of AIDS because quite often their parents would have nothing to do with them. Their boyfriends had died. And they were literally... She wasn't touchy-feely like Diana was, but she made them laugh. And, um, and she came to Henry's um, funeral, you know. I, I, that's what I call a really good friend. She was a good friend, and your husband was a very amusing but difficult man. Why did you stay with him for so long? Well, partly, people write to me. I got, had so many letters. We're going to go on to my last book, which is something which is darker, and, and more, I'll explain why I wrote it. Uh, but, but he, I, I said, I did, I couldn't have gone on living with him if he'd been in a small house. But because he went out to the West Indies so often, and he was wonderful. We, I mean, I loved him. We loved each other, but he was just impossible to live with because of his terrible, terrible temper. You know? Gosh, I'm finding Anglin Connor completely compelling. The stories of her time spent alongside the royal family are extraordinary, aren't they? But so too is her own life. As she just mentioned, her long marriage to Colin Tennant, Lord Glenconnor, a socialite, aristocrat, the man who developed the Caribbean island of Mustique, was volatile and at times abusive. In fact, that's the subject of her latest book, Whatever Next. I'm going to touch on that in the next part of our conversation. And then we're going to finish up with some questions from the audience in the church, which throw up some more amazing stories. So we've kept them in for you to hear. So back to St. Mary's Barnes and Anne Lady Gangona. Well, you've mentioned your latest book, which is called Whatever Next, and it is a change of gear. It's the same person, but you're more revealing. Why did you decide to do the new book? Partly because of uh, the Queen now, who's done so much for domestic abuse. You mean Queen Camilla? Queen Camilla, yes, the Queen. Uh, uh, and also for, um, you know, rape in war and all that sort of thing. And I, had, I talked to her once because she's done so much. And I was saying that I was thinking of writing a book uh, like uh, of my life. And she sort of encouraged it. And then I thought, well, I must asked my children, my twin daughters, May and Amy and Christopher. And so I said, look, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? And what was so extraordinary was they started to tell me stories that Colin had done to them, some things that they never liked to speak. We had the most wonderful, it was very therapeutic, and it was like a huge elephant suddenly left the room, you know? And um, we were all uh, sort of much more relaxed now. Anyway, I um, and it's been a success from the point of view that I was very humble about because of the letters I got from people thanking me for writing like I did, saying it had helped them. Uh, uh, quite some of them said, well, we've, I've now decided to leave my husband, which I did feel a bit embarrassed about. <laughs> I just hope the husband hadn't realised that he was mine. What is the, the lessons you have learned from this, from your experience? What do you think you did wrong along the way or did oh, you all do it right and are you merely a victim or do you think you made mistakes yeah, Well, I think journey? parenthood, I mean, it was extremely difficult because um, I have five children and Colin, who was like the sixth child, and he needed so much attention that I, uh, I, luckily for the three younger ones, I had a wonderful nanny called Barbara Barnes, who they went on to look after uh, Prince William and Prince Harry. And so she was fantastic. She's so good with Colin. 
I mean, she's absolutely brilliant. And, uh, and he always behaved when she told him to, actually. He's more than he did when I, when I asked him. Uh, but I, I think uh, perhaps a lot of people regret or feel that they could have done something different with the children. You know, I, I don't... That, that, that's probably what I... Otherwise, I have really few regrets. I've had an, an amazing life, a wonderful life. <laughs> I've got one more question for you, but before that, there, I'm sure there are lots of people who've got questions that they would like to ask Anne. So if you have, I mean, what a rich mixture of uh, experience and stories she shared with us. But if anybody got something they would like particularly to ask, raise a hand, tell us who you are. I will repeat the question, and she will, without doubt, answer it. Yeah, yes, no, please. No. And tell us who you are and what your question is. It's a question about um, Princess Margaret and Peter Townsend. To remind, to remind listeners who don't know the background of the story, if I may, just briefly, Peter Townsend was an equerry yes. to uh, uh, George VI. Yes, I'll tell you about that. Uh, I once asked her about it, actually. Um, he, he, was, he was a war hero, uh, a very um, attractive. And he was like a sort of surrogate son, I think, to the king, you know. Uh, but, but, of course, she was very, very young. I mean, she was only uh, 15 when he first arrived, and he was a married man. Man. And I think that, well, we don't go into it too much, but I think he encouraged her, which he shouldn't have done, I think. And I said to her, when did you fall in love with him? And she said, when they all went off to Africa, was it the blue train or whatever, all their horses were in, in the back of the train. And every morning and every evening, they would go riding off across the desert or whatever, into the sunset. And she said she actually fell in love with him then. Uh, and um, anyway, I think the Queen was so wise because she didn't say you can't marry him. She said you can't for two years and he's going to be sent off to Belgium. And of course, at the end of the two years, she realised, I think, that she would have had to give up everything. And then I lived with Princess Margaret for a whole year at Kensington Palace. And one day she said, oh, Peter's coming to lunch. Um, obviously, I wasn't invited. She just had a lunch alone with him. But I looked out of the window, I could hear the car up, can see a pal, and a very, very old man got out of the car and went in, and then he left, and then Princess Margaret rang to say, would I go down and have a cup of coffee? And I said, oh, ma'am, how did it go? Oh, she said, he hasn't changed at all. Oh, oh I just thought that was so touching. Yeah. But in many ways, I think maybe she was re relieved that it didn't happen in oh, the I end. Oh, I do. I think... She's very religious, Princess Margaret, uh, and, you know, the Queen was the head of the church, and you know, in those days, uh, divorced people they couldn't go to Ascot, you, they couldn't, you know. I, mean, I do it was, know. It was so different then. You know? It was very different. Even when I first went to a royal garden party, divorced people weren't admitted to the garden parties. Now, divorced people are hosting them. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Yeah. But but that in a way is good. I think the reason yeah, that the whole system has yeah. has succeeded is that it has evolved. Yeah, it has. But of course, in those days, it, it just wasn't, you know. And in fairness to the senior people, I think it was, though it was built up in the press as a great love affair, the truth is he was considerably older than her, and I think people like yes. the King's Private Secretary felt he was taking advantage of his proximity as an older man. Well, I, I, that, that has never sort of been brought out very much, but I couldn't agree more. 
I mean, you know, he's married with children. She was only 15, you know? Yeah. Uh, um, anyway, there we, anyway, there we are. Water under the bridge. Yeah, we've got water. one more question in the back there. This is so exciting. I think we could go on all night, couldn't we? <laughs> uh, yeah. Hello, I'm David Hatcher. I live here in Barnes. He would like to know, given your interesting observations about the um, abdication, which happened a long time ago and all the people are no longer with us, he would love your observations about the Sussexes. Well, <laughs> on the whole, I don't talk about that. I mean, the trouble about my, uh, people of my age, I mean, in my book, there's so many words one can't use. My publisher, please, Anne, don't say anything to get you ghosted. Is it called ghosting or something? Cancelled. 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 Well, I hate to be cancelled on my age. But I, well, I, I used to know Harry um, because uh, he was a little boy um, and my nanny, Barbara, and I used to go and see him. And he was, he was a lovely little boy. Um, I think the thing about Meghan was that she had no idea what was expected of her, really. Uh, I think she just thought it was like being another actress, you know, riding around in a golden coach and everything like that. And actually, being a member of the royal family, I mean, I followed Princess Margaret for 34 years. A lot of it is extremely boring, actually. You know, I mean, dedicated stuff, meeting hundreds and thousands of people you're never going to meet again, always trying to say something, you know, interesting and nice. Uh, and I think it was very sad, and I feel very sad for Harry because at the Cor King's coronation I happened to sit next to somebody called John Kerry who uh, ran for president he wanted to be president and he came over with Mrs Biden because he is into um, green things and I was sitting he was sitting with, uh, with the King's friends and I said to him what do you think in America about um, Harry and Meghan? And he just said, we all feel very, very sorry for Harry. So I think that I can just leave it at that. You can leave it there. <laughs> uh, over here, I think there's a question, down in the front. First of all, just to say, speaking to people of Mustique, there seems to be a tremendous feeling that what you and The essence of it is somebody who knows Mustique admired yes. Yes. hugely what yes. you and Colin achieved there. And he is saying that now more recent visitors are regretting that Mustique is not what it used to no. be. No, you're right. I went, I was lent, uh, from, uh, somebody very kindly lent me their, their house, Town, you know, one of the first houses built there. Uh, and I took the children. But of course, the magic has sort of gone rather. I mean, uh, Colin and I lived there for, you know, for ages alone. And then, then it, when people started to build houses, it was like a big house party. And, uh, and Colin, of course, was a genius at entertaining. And make, he said, uh, give me somebody, I'll take them for a swim. When we come out, I will have sold them a house. Uh, and he would have done. And of course, I must just tell a quick, slightly not a swimming story, because the Queen came twice to Mustique. She was so sweet. She came to see Princess Margaret's house. I remember Princess Margaret showing everything. The poor Queen looking at the lavatory, saying, oh, Margaret, what a lovely lavatory. <laughs> and then, oh, oh, I mean, she had to see everything, and she's so good. Anyway, um, she never normally swam because of people taking photographs. Anyway, because we could keep all the press away from Musty, she swam in the beautiful um, uh, bay uh, called Macaroni and enjoyed it very much. Three days later, somebody, the Colin 
uh, uh, work for Collins, was taking some visitors by, passed her, and he said, oh, the Queen uh, swam there three days ago. We haven't changed the water since. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the thing I think, I mean, we we are not going to say who, but we were asked to um, dinner uh, in this house. It was sort of their side, this house. I mean, people build the most ridiculous houses. Uh, they, you know, the original houses were, were all, um, you know, gingerbread uh, and charming. Now, I didn't, I mean, this, this one had colonnades. It was like Holcomb. It was a mini Holcomb on Musty. Right? What I want to know, really finally, is what is your secret, if you can unwrap it for us, because your books... Your autobiographical books, to me, are very moving. Uh, You've had an extraordinary life, in some ways very privileged because of your family, and wonderful to know wonderful people, like the late Queen Elizabeth II was a truly wonderful human being, uh, with a fascinating husband, and you knew Princess Margaret, who was a more complicated animal, because of her... not such a wonderful husband. uh, With, exactly. Well, yes, we both were privileged to know Tony, and he had many gifts, but the gift of being a good husband wasn't one of them. No, it certainly wasn't. So, but you had all these privileges, and yet in your own life, you had the challenge of a husband who was abusive, both psychologically and occasionally physically. You had the tragedy of well, sons, sons with one a drug addict, the other who dies of AIDS. Uh, and then Chris, darling Christopher, who um, was in a coma for five months. I mean, he's wonderful. He's still very badly disabled, but he's a joy. I mean, he's never, never uh, complained at all. And he's got a wonderful, um, what is it, second wife, actually. Uh, absolutely, but he's my PA and I, I rely on. I mean, I've had great joy in my life and terrible sadness. I mean, I think if you go through something, I knew two of my sons were dying, and then the third one had this ghastly accident, absolutely determined not to lose him, and I didn't. Uh, But if you go through that, nothing ever can be as as bad as that, or bad again. And in a way, it's all like going through the fiery furnace. I'm out, I've done that, and and life's a joy. I enjoy it all, um, you know. And is the source of that, do you have a faith? What is, yes. Ah, because here we are in a church. I want, really want to know the source of your optimism, your joy, your positivity, given your story that could depress people. But when you reach the end of this book, you will be moved and you will be, we'll, you'll feel joyful too. And I, if you can try as your last well, word to encapsulate well, that. Well, I mean, to talk, as we are in a church, it's the most perfect place to talk about. Because on the whole, people don't talk about faith and religion. And I have my faith faith was, you know, going to church every Sunday, um, uh, saying my prayers, you know. But it wasn't until I was in the position of, uh, I knew that two of my sons were dying, and I wanted to say, I was determined to save Christopher. And I did have dialogues with God. I mean, I said, I'm, please help me. And God did. We had the most marvellous um, uh, Christian healer called Mrs. Black, and she lived in Fife. And she she did amazing things with Christo. And one day, I was so tired, I could hardly speak. And she said to me, oh, Anne, I think you need a bit of help. And I said, well, I do, because I just don't know if I can go on any longer. So she said, tomorrow morning, sit 
in a comfortable chair and uh, just don't think of anything. So sort of doubting Thomas, I sort of sat in the chair waiting. And it was extraordinary. It was like it only happened this once. It was like I was filled with champagne, with energy, with hope. And um, it didn't last very long, but that's what happened. And from that moment on, I went back. I could cope with things, you know. And it was a moment, I'm sure, that God came down and helped me. This hour has not lasted long enough, but you have filled us with a kind of champagne, hope and joy. And Glen Connor, thank you so much. <laughs> was that interesting but from my point of view inspiring too I loved what Anne said there about being filled up with champagne and uh, I hope you feel a little bit of that effervescence when you listen to Rosebud she had so many extraordinary stories from her life spent among remarkable people and it's stories like that which we want to bring to you in this podcast perhaps we should invite her to come back in a few years for another episode Maybe in a less echoey building, but actually a church, why not? It's a beautiful church too. If ever you're in Barnes in southwest London, do look into it. Anyway, before I go, it's time for some of your emails. Jenny Mitchell has been in touch. I'm fascinated that you're using the name Rosebud for your podcast. I am a similar age to you, and my favorite doll was called Rosebud, because she has, yes, I still have her, Rosebud printed on her back. Do you know why her name was so popular when we were very young? Well, I know why we call our show Rosebud. It's because of the film Citizen Kane, in which the lead character, played by Orson Welles, the creator of the film, uh, goes back to his childhood and remembers a traumatic moment of his childhood that involved a sledge, the brand name of which was Rosebud, and indeed, Rosebud is his last word. So the last word in first words, as far as we're concerned, is Rosebud. But Rosebud may also be the name of a fairy tale princess. And it could be there was a princess Rosebud in fairy tales in the early 1950s. Maybe in a movie that was made then. Maybe a Disney film. I'll do some more inquiries about Rosebud. And Jenny, thank you very much for sending us a photograph of the doll. I have to say... Time has not necessarily been kind to her. I mean, it's a traditional, wonderful doll. But I know that yours is very lovely and you still cherish it and it's called Rosebud. But, I mean, funny things happen. People can't get rid of their toys. I mean, I'm told that Prince Andrew, the Duke of York, still has his bed covered in teddy bears. But let's not go there. This is from Belinda Eldridge. She writes... I'm relatively new to podcasts. In fact, yours is only the fourth series I've listened to. May I just say, however, how marvellous your series really is? I particularly enjoyed Dame Judi Dench. My earliest memory is of my mum, a dead ringer for Dame Judi, setting fire to a pan in the kitchen. Throwing a wet tea towel over it, she took it outside and looked very stressed as she opened all the doors and windows. Needless to say, this wasn't the only kitchen fire incident in my mother's cooking days, and I developed a taste for burnt foodstuffs, particularly toast. I'm not allowed anywhere near the kitchen, as my husband quickly learned to cook six weeks into cohabiting. Seventeen years on, I haven't lifted so much as a carving knife. This is the trick to develop. Just burn the toast early on and you're kept out of the kitchen. Someone else is going to do the work. Clever ruse. Thank you for sharing that, Belinda. 
We've had lots of other emails from people saying they're loving the show so far. So keep listening. Thank you very much. Keep emailing. It's simply hello at rosebudpodcast.com. Hello, H-E-L-L-O at rosebudpodcast.com. Oh, I knew Leslie Phillips. Oh, I wish I'd interviewed him for Rosebud because then I could have got him saying hello. Rosebud is produced by Harriet Jane, artwork by Freya Betts, and music by Phil Leppard. That's it for this week's Rosebud. Do join us next time. <laughs>